Good morning. How are y'all? Y'all ready to raise your hands and answer all my questions? Uh, oh, look at the thumbs up in the back. I like it. Uh, I miss being with you guys. I like that. I miss being with you guys. We, uh, we recently had a baby, so Alejandro, uh, I, I asked him to give me a couple months off um, to uh, try to catch up on some sleep from that little one back there. If he starts screaming later on, uh, just do your best to pay attention. Um, before considering the Word of God this morning, by the way, I, you guys should have got an outline. Is there anybody that doesn't have an outline? No? Cool. Sweet. Use it to take notes. Hopefully, as I, as I talk, it'll be clear. But if not, reference that um, as your guide as we move through. But before considering the Word of God this morning and opening up to Matthew, I want to start out by considering the words of men, of people. Okay, so listen closely. Look up here real quick as you prepare to take notes. In 1966, Time Magazine, a major American publication, they, they published an essay where they made a series of predictions about the future. They, they predicted that online shopping would flop, that it would fail, because people like to get out of the house, they like to handle merchandise, they like to be able to change their minds. Whose parents online shop? Okay, I online shop, and I looked up a little uh, statistic on Google that as of I think May of this year, Amazon's revenue for the, the last 12 months was like $525 billion. So were these folks right in this Time Magazine article? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Here's another one. In 1946, a guy by the name Daryl Zanuck, he's a prominent film producer and studio uh, executive, he, he said television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures for the first six months. He predicted people are going to get tired of staring at a little plywood box at television. Unfortunately, 80 years later, we know that even though our plywood boxes have gotten a little bit flatter and sleeker and cooler looking, we have not gotten tired of looking at them, right? Um, one, one last one. You may be familiar with this one. Anybody familiar with a little ship called the Titanic? Yeah, not so little, right? When commenting on this ship in 1911, the ship's captain said, I cannot conceive of any vital disaster happening to this vessel. Modern shipbuilding has gone way beyond that. One of the guys that assisted in the building of the ship said, there is no danger. There is no danger that the Titanic will sink. The boat is unsinkable and nothing but inconvenience is going to happen to the passengers. Where's the Titanic as we're sitting here this morning? That's right, it's at the bottom of the ocean. It's at the bottom of the ocean. So I hope you can see the common thread among these things. Namely, that the assertions of people, the assertions of men, are totally incapable of predicting the future. They're totally incapable of determining the future. They're subject to errors and inaccuracies. And these men, like we're thinking about right now, they look silly, right? By saying what they said, did it come true? No, they look like fools because their little human minds did not accord with the sovereign plan of God. And we may like to think that we're not like them, but we are like them. We're fallible, we're dependent, we have a very limited understanding of the world. So this is why I pray that our text today would make us more dependent on Christ's words, which are for us stumbling, blundering people that can't predict anything, unshakable footing. When God predicts, it comes to pass, right? When he commands, history obeys. And his words are not subject to errors and inaccuracies. 
Our text for today contains Christ's final moments with his disciples. And even though it probably seemed to these disciples that these last moments were full of uncertainty, it turns out that one of the main themes we're going to be looking at today is the certainty of Christ's words. Isn't that amazing? So so the truthfulness, the authority of Christ's words as a major theme shouldn't surprise us because you guys have been talking about these things with Alejandro, with your other teachers. So before we dive in, let's review some of the uh, occurrences of this last week, of this Passover week. Does anybody remember what happened on Sunday, the Passover week? Yes, Palm Sunday, triumphal entry. What happened on Monday? Yes, the cleansing of the temple. What happened on Tuesday? Yes. Yeah, there's a debate with the Pharisees. Very good, very good. Wednesday, anybody remember Wednesday? Yes. Yes, yes, that's right. Mary anoints Jesus. What else? There's the plot to kill Jesus. You guys are doing awesome this morning. And then this week at youth group, you guys started talking about what, what was happening on Thursday. What was happening on Thursday? You remember? Yes. That's right, the Passover. And, and Alejandro um, named the, these two points that he made. For the first one, the preparation, where you delved into the details and the significance surrounding the arrangements of the Passover meal. And the second one, I think he titled the perilous prediction. Do you all remember those two? In the perilous prediction, you guys looked at the fact that while Jesus was reclining at table with his disciples, he predicted that who was going to betray him? Judas, that's right. So today we're going to unpack two additional scenes in this chapter that will continue to showcase, listen to this, that the sovereignty and the saving work of Jesus Christ. We'll cover those again in just a moment. But as I listened to Alejandro's message from Wednesday... He said something that I hope encourages you to pay attention this morning. I want to borrow something he said. He said of this section of Scripture we're going to read this morning, he said, this should remind us of God's sovereignty and mercy over salvation. He said passages like the one we're going to study today should blow your minds. You guys should leave here thinking, I I can't believe how awesome God is because he orchestrates everything because he's all-powerful and all-knowing. So with this in mind, let's read our text for today. Uh, Open up your Bibles to Matthew 26, verse 26. I'll give you a moment to get there. Matthew 26, verse 26. If you don't have a Bible, look on with the person next to you. It's important that you know that these words are not coming from my mouth, from the mouth of God. So verse 26 says, While they were eating, Jesus took some bread And after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I'll never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same things too. So in Matthew 26, 26 to 35, 
we're going to see two scenes. How many scenes? Two scenes occurring the night before the crucifixion that demonstrate the sovereignty and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Scene number one, as you see on your outline, is the Lord's Supper instituted. Scene number two will be the scattered sheep predicted. So let's look at scene number one, the Lord's Supper instituted first. As you, may have cho- as you may have seen in your outline, I've chosen to subdivide this first scene into three. First, we'll look at the Lord's body, the Lord's blood after that, and then the Lord's kingdom. So look down at your Bibles as we look at verse 26, the Lord's body. Verse 26 says, while they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. So the text begins with while they were eating. Can someone remind the group of the the significance of the meal they were eating. What, what was the meal that they were eating together? You guys are mouthing it. What is it? The Passover meal. That's right, the Passover meal. And what does that represent? What does the Passover meal represent? Why was it important? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It harkened back to, to Israel's deliverance from, from Egypt, right? It was a celebration of their redeeming God. As they were eating the Passover meal, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? He, he took some, what? Some bread. And after a blessing, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. That's right. So, so far, that seems pretty ordinary, right? I, I share a meal with my wife sometimes. Uh, sometimes we split our meal, we pray, and I give myself the bigger piece sometimes. Um, however, we, we can appreciate the fellowship that the Lord is sharing with his disciples the night before he is crucified. And we should appreciate the significance of the Passover meal, this specific Passover meal. Why? Because the meal that was instituted to celebrate the deliverance of God's people from Egypt was now being enjoyed by the one who was about to deliver them from their sin. It's pretty amazing, right? So after taking bread and saying a blessing and breaking it, giving it to his disciples, what does Jesus say? He says, take, eat, this is my body. That's right. Let's go ahead and address the glaring question. Does Jesus mean that literally? Does Jesus mean that literally? Is that his literal body? And in a second we'll see, is that his literal blood? You guys are shaking your head and smiling, but some people believe that. The Catholic Church holds on to the teaching that all of a sudden, as, as the Lord's Supper is being celebrated, it becomes Christ's real blood and Christ's real body, but, but that is not the case. Let me ask you a question. John fifteen five, Jesus says, I am the vine. You are the branches, he who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Is Jesus a literal vine? (laughs) No, no. In John 10, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Is Jesus a literal door? No. So when your parents ask you in the car today, what did you learn in Sunday school today? You can say, I learned that Jesus is not a plant. I learned that Jesus is not a door that turns on a hinge and has a handle. So, so what is John 15, 5 trying to communicate? He's trying to, to communicate that in the same way the life and the fruitfulness of a branch depends on its being attached to the vine, so the spiritual life and the fruitfulness of God's people are determined on their attachment to Jesus Christ. What does he mean in John 10 when he says, Jesus, Jesus is the door. What, what does it mean when Jesus is saying, I, I am the door? He, he's saying that in the same way that, that a door is an entry point for sheep seeking pasture, I am the entry point into the kingdom of God. So it, it's clear 
the bread and the cup are not his literal body, his literal blood. He, he means these things in a, in a representative sense. So having made it clear that Jesus can't be speaking literally, what does he mean when he says, take, eat, this is my body? What does he mean? What's he saying? What is he saying? Anybody know? Anybody want to take a guess? Sure. Accept my sacrifice? Sometimes you guys give me answers that make me think, that's how I should have titled my, my points. Uh, yeah, I think so. I think that's what we'll see here in a moment. In Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, which is like a parallel passage, the same thing is happening. Luke twenty two nineteen, 19, Luke says, when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my blood which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So, so what does he mean here? This is a key point if you want to write this down. Jesus intended for the bread to be representative of his self-giving sacrifice, his body, his life, given for you, given for sinners as a payment for sin. So Jesus intended the bread to be representative of his self-giving sacrifice. The, the eating of this bread was to represent, and is still to represent, our embracing of the saving truths of the gospel. Having eaten the bread, representing Jesus' body given for his people, the disciples were instructed to remember the Lord in one additional way. Look down at Matthew 26. Look now at verse 27. We consider the Lord's blood. Verse 27 says, And we had taken a cup and given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So similar uh, kind of thing as we saw with the bread. He, he's giving them the cup, he gives thanks, and he tells his disciples to drink from it. What's the significance of this part of the meal? Why is this part important, the cup? Why is this important? Why should they take of this cup? Jesus tells us, he says, for, for, because this is my, what? My blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. What on earth does it mean that it's the blood of the covenant? What does it mean that it's the blood of the covenant? Anybody know what a covenant is? What's, it, what's a covenant? What is it? Exactly, a promise or a pact or a commitment, a mutual um, agreement of some kind. And Jesus, I'm sorry, God does that throughout the Old Testament with his people. He, he institutes covenants with them. But what covenant is he referring to here? What covenant is Jesus referring to here? Anybody know? Yes. Okay, yeah, a covenant maybe representing forgiveness of sins. That, that's exactly right. If we look at Luke twenty two twenty, Luke says in the same way, and he's going to give us an additional detail here, so listen closely. He says, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant in my blood. The new, anybody ever heard of the new covenant? Yeah? What's the new covenant? Anybody know? Yes, go ahead. Yeah, it's a new promise. It's a new promise. So, so it, there's certainly nothing new about the new covenant. It's not new to God's redemptive plan. Jesus is not making this up on his last day. In order to, to see that, why don't you flip with me real quick to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 will be in verse 31. And as you turn there, as you turn to Jeremiah, let's, let's really quick consider the, the context of the book of Jeremiah. From the beginning of the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah 
wastes no time telling us how God's people whom he had created, prospered, dwelt among, had forsaken him. His people had turned their backs on him. He says in chapter 2, they, they, they abandoned the fountain of living waters, hewed out cisterns from, for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The idolatry, the unrighteousness, the hypocrisy of God's people were such that even, even unbelieving nations, even nations that didn't follow God, didn't follow Yahweh, would one day pass by the city and say, why has the Lord done that to that great city? Why has he judged them in that way? And even, even these unbelieving people would say, because they forsook the covenant of their Lord and bowed down to other gods and served them, Jeremiah tells us in chapter 22. So, so God's people forsook the Mosaic covenant. But listen now to God's words to his covenant-breaking people in the text that you have in front of you. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 31. God says to them, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's amazing. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, speaks of a future new covenant through which he promises two amazing things. Did you catch that? One of them was the one that the young man in the back mentioned. What are those two things that he promises to his unworthy, covenant-breaking, God-forgetting, idol-loving people? What does he promise to them? Yes, he promises that he's going to forgive their sin. Verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. What's the second thing? He says he's going to give them a new, a new what? A new heart, a new heart with which to obey him. He says, I will put my law within them. No longer will the law be something outside of them. And on the, their heart, I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So as Jesus passes the cup to his disciples, he's speaking of a new covenant that would soon be put into effect. A sin-forgiving, a saving covenant like the young man said in the back. But this covenant would come at a price. What was the price of the covenant? If we think about all the covenants that God made with his people, what is something that is essential to the ratifying or to the making official of a covenant? What is the official stamp of approval for a covenant to be ratified? Yes, blood. Exactly. If we look at the Noahic covenant, you don't have to flip there. In Genesis 8, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took every clean animal, every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. We see sacrifice, we see blood. In the Abrahamic covenant, God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, God says to him, Bring me a heifer and three, a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. Abraham brings all of these and he cuts them into. We see sacrifice, we see blood. Same thing in the Mosaic covenant. Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So blood is essential to covenant ratification, to making a covenant official. The institution of the new covenant that secured forgiveness of sins and, and new hearts for the people of God was not going to come cheap. This is why our text today says, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's ask a question of the text real quick, before moving on. 
Why, why not the, the blood of a heifer or a goat? Why not the blood of a ram to institute the new covenant? Why not the blood of a pigeon? Why, why not the blood of all of those combined? Why, why did Jesus' blood have to be spilled? Why did Jesus' blood have to be spilled? Because he was perfect? I, I get some other hands over there. That's a really good answer. Yes? Because the rams aren't perfect? He was without sin. I love those answers. I love those answers, and they all align with what Pastor Dusty has been teaching us, right? Those things were not enough. Let's look real quick to, to Hebrews 10. Flip to Hebrews 10 real quick. Flip to Hebrews 10. Those are great, those are great answers, guys. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law... For the law, that is the old covenant, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, the old covenant can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because if the worshipers had once been cleansed, they would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year after year. So, so this is saying, guys, if you, if you didn't catch that, if the old covenant animal blood-based sacrificial system had been enough for sin-forgiving and, and heart-renewing, they would not have been continued to be offered year after year. The, the fact that these offerings continued all the time was evidence of the fact that they were not enough. They were pointing to a greater sacrifice. They, they were pointing to more precious blood. They pointed to a blood that was more precious than the blood of every animal and every man put together. Look at verse 4 of Hebrews 10. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Whose body would serve as this sacrifice? Jesus's. Verse 6. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins, you have taken no pleasure. Again, speaking of the insufficiency of the animal blood of the old covenant. Verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, the old covenant. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first, the old covenant, in order to establish the second, the, the new covenant. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The author of Hebrews reiterates this. Skip down to verse 14. For by one offering, he says, this is really special, guys. Pay attention to this piece. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us for after saying, listen to this, this should sound familiar, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. And then he says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That is new covenant language right there, right? Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. If you're taking notes, and you zoned out a little bit, I'm going to sum all of that up in the following way, okay? This is the key point that you should take away. When Jesus took the cup, 
When Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples, he intended for them to remember the sin-forgiving, heart-transforming benefits of the new covenant made official by his blood. I'll say that again. When Jesus took the cup and he gave it to his disciples, he wanted them to remember the sin-forgiving, heart-transforming benefits of the new covenant made official by his blood. Guys, are your sins forgiven? Are your sins forgiven as you sit here today? Do you, do you have a new heart? Or are you in bondage to, to law-breaking, to God-forgetting, to idol-loving, like those that still have a heart of stone? Is the judgment of God for your sin dangling over your head right now? If that's you, put your hope in Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice. As Jeremiah says, he will forgive your iniquity and your sin. He will remember no more. He'll give you a new heart with which to obey him and love him. Before moving forward, we should note that the Passover meal was from here forward obsolete. It was done away with. It wasn't relevant anymore because the greater, the ultimate redemption that it was pointing to all along was about to occur in the body of Jesus. So throughout this first scene, the institution of the Lord's Supper, we've looked at two subsections, the Lord's body, where the disciples were called to remember Christ's self-giving giving sacrifice in the Lord's blood, where the disciples were called to remember his sin-forgiving, heart-transforming benefits of his covenant ratified in his blood. And now we look at a third Subsection, the Lord's kingdom. Look down at verse 29. Look at verse 29 with me. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So what's he referring to when he says, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day? He's saying, I'm not going to drink of this cup that represents my shed blood until, until later right? What day is he speaking of? What is that later day? What is that later day? What does the text say? Mm -hmm. When he comes again, when he's in his father's kingdom, he's speaking of a future day when he's reunited with these folks, right? He's telling them, think about the context of this, the night before his crucifixion, before the the horrors of the crucifixion, before the the temptations they were going to face, before the trials they were going to face, the persecutions, all the tribulations of life, he's telling them, that one day he's going to enjoy what one commentator uh, said as I was reading. One day he's going to enjoy everlasting festive fellowship with them again. Guys, do you look forward to this everlasting festive fellowship? When you're taking the Lord's Supper, you're probably remembering Christ's body. You're probably remembering Christ's blood. But are you looking forward to the meal that you're going to share with him one day? As you put joy in your heart as you take of the bread and drink of the cup. So the Lord's Supper is not just a reminder of his self-giving sacrifice, his blood-bought new covenant blessings. It's also for the disciples and all of us a promise that Jesus is going to return, just like somebody said here at the front, that he will enjoy everlasting fellowship with his people. It says that after Jesus finished saying these things, they sang a hymn, and they went from the upper room and started traveling to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would be arrested. So I mentioned at the very beginning of our text today, does anybody remember our theme for today? Anybody remember our theme today? It's my coffee. Let me grab this real quick. What's our theme? It's on your sheets. Very top. There's two things that we're highlighting. We're, we're going to be seeing two scenes that demonstrate the what and the what. Yes. 
That's right. The, the sovereignty and the saving work of Jesus Christ. We just finished looking at scene number one, the Lord's Supper instituted, where we saw his body, blood, kingdom. And I hope you notice those two components. Can you say them one more time? The sovereignty and the saving work. So, so his saving work was obvious, right? That the bread and the cup, his body, his blood. Jesus' sovereignty was also on display here as he assures his disciples that although his body would be sacrificed, his blood spilt, he would return and establish his kingdom. Who, who can say that? Who can say that but God? The night before his crucifixion, making promises to his disciples about what's going to happen in the future. We look now at scene number two. Scene number two. The scattered sheep predicted. A lot like the first scene, I've subdivided the second scene into three parts. We'll look at the scattered sheep, the sovereign shepherd, and the self-confident sheep. Look down at verse 31 as we look at the scattered sheep. So remember, they've just left the upper room. They're traveling to the Mount of Olives. A lot of commentators say that this conversation that's about to happen is happening as they're walking, as they're traveling. Verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Jesus, what do you mean? We just, we just reclined at table together. We, we broke bread, we, we shared a cup, and we just sang a hymn. What do you mean? Would this have taken you by surprise if you were one of these disciples? I think so. You will all fall away because of me. Not just one of you, like he mentioned when speaking of Judas. All of you will fall away because of me. What rationale does he give for saying this? He says, for it is what? What does it say? Mm -hmm. For it is written. Right? He, he's referencing scripture as we should in all things. He references Zechariah 13. Zechariah 13.7, which says, you don't have to flip there, but in Zechariah 13.7, Zechariah says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man. My associate, declares the Lord of hosts, strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. We think about really briefly the, the context of Zechariah. He, he speaks of, of judgment on pitiless shepherds in, in chapter 11 of Zechariah, of, of foolish shepherds in chapter 11, of, of false prophets in chapter 12. So whenever Zechariah starts to speak in a different way, we should pay attention. He starts to speak of this mysterious character that he calls my shepherd. God speaking through Isaiah references my shepherd. This is somebody that is on God's side. He calls him then my associate, my associate. John MacArthur argues that this last term could be rendered the mighty man of my union, the mighty man equal to me, clearly indicating that the person that is being referenced here is, is deity. He is like God. And Jesus definitively identifies himself as this shepherd in Zechariah 13, 7, who would be struck, and his sheep as those who would be scattered. What's the reason that Jesus gives as to why his sheep would scatter? Why would his sheep eventually leave him? Why would a sheep leave him? He says, you will fall away because of? Yeah, yeah, partly, partly. Look at, look at the text. You will fall away because of? Yes. Because of me, exactly, because of me. Their association with Jesus, their friendship with Jesus, would be the basis of their scattering. They would scatter so that they would not suffer the public consequences of being Jesus' friend. Guys, when facing public consequences of being identified as Christ's sheep, will, will you be ashamed? Are you going to be ashamed of him? It may be easy in this room to say, no, I'd never be ashamed. 
After all, your parents are probably Christians. Your friends are probably Christians. Maybe you're receiving a Christian education of some sort, and nobody has ever challenged you. You've never had to pay a price for following Jesus. Maybe it'd be good for you to add to your prayer list every day that when you're faced with a decision to stand by your shepherd or scatter, that Jesus would give you the grace to stand by him. As part of scene two, the scattered sheep predicted, we just heard Jesus making a startling prediction. He says, you're all going to scatter. Those whom he nourished, those whom he helped would soon leave him. And we'll see in just a moment, they don't respond very well. They, they fail to receive his words with a heart of humble dependence. But had they taken his word seriously and assessed their own weakness with honesty, they, they may have asked Jesus, Jesus, to what extent am I going to fall away? Lord, it, it grieves me. It makes me sad that I will be ashamed of you. Will I ever be restored to your service? Lord, I know that I am weak. I know that I am weak, but will I ever be able to find you after you are struck? Listen closely to the words of Jesus in this second subsection, the sovereign shepherd. Look at verse 32. This is amazing, guys. These are breathtaking words. Jesus says, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Guys, look up here. What if I said to you, hey, let's go to lunch after church today. I said lunch, and some people just looked up for the first time. What if I said to you, hey guys, let's go to lunch after church today. As soon as I leave the building, I'm going to get hit by a bus. But then I'm going to meet you at the restaurant. What would you think? You think I'm crazy, right? First of all, there's absolutely no way that I could predict the trajectory of a bus, and my trajectory would be such that a bus would strike me. There'd be no way for me to be able to predict the extent of my injuries, and there'd be no way for me to recover from a rolling piece of metal that weighs 20,000 pounds before lunch. That's crazy. Guys, the statement that Jesus is making here is 10,000 times more stunning. Jesus is telling his disciples with all the certainty in the universe that he is going to go face God's almighty, almighty wrath for sinners. He's going to die. He is going to be buried. He is going to rise again. And then he's going to go meet them in Galilee in his resurrected body to continue to use them to execute his redemptive plan throughout the world. Who can say that but the God of the universe on the night before his crucifixion? Raise your hand if you think that's amazing. Well, it gets better. If that were not by itself one of the most amazing things you've ever heard, consider who he is saying this to. Who is he saying this to? He is promising to restore and to deputize his disciples to carry out his mission in the world, knowing that in the span of a couple of hours, what were they going to do? They were going to be ashamed of him. They were going to scatter as one would be ashamed of a criminal. These sheep would want nothing to do with their shepherd. But Jesus did not waver. He was resolute as he walked to the cross, knowing that Christ rejecting sins of his disciples and knowing your horrible sins... And knowing my horrible sins, he walked to the cross. Consider his fortitude, consider his patience, his steadfastness, his obedience to the Father. To say that this grace is amazing is an understatement. Does anybody struggle with the thought that if Christ knew the kind of sinner that you would turn out to be, he would have never, ever saved you? Christian, Jesus knew what kind of sinner you would be from all eternity. And he hung on the cross for you. Let this thought light your heart on fire with love for Christ, guys. Would it cause you to worship him when we go into the big service? Would it cause you to serve him? Would it cause you to more readily and more decisively turn from your sin 
when you're tempted with something? Would it disgust you because you know how amazing your Savior is who went to the cross knowing your weakness? As part of scene two, the scattered sheep predicted, we saw the first subsection titled, what was the first subsection titled? The scattered sheep, that's right. Jesus predicted that his sheep would scatter upon his arrest and crucifixion. Then we saw the sovereign shepherd, that's right, where Jesus tells his soon-to-be scattered disciples that after he's raised, he would, again, by his grace, be together with them in Galilee. We move to the third and final subsection titled the self-confident sheep. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says, But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. What's wrong with that statement? Jesus, I'll never fall away. Even, even though everybody else does, I'll never do it. What's wrong with that statement? It's not true for one. That's a great, that's a great answer. And how do we know it's not true? Because, yes, Jesus just said it's going to happen, right? And they have seen time after time the authority of the words of Jesus. He says, Lazarus, arise. And what does Lazarus do? That's right. He contradicts Jesus. And more than that, I think Jesus had just made an amazing statement about meeting up with him in Galilee. And Peter, it's like he doesn't even register that in his mind. He contradicts Jesus. He exalts himself to a spiritual position where he feels like immune to any Christ-betraying temptations. Guys, I don't work in a, in a, in a place that's it's necessarily Christian. And I'll tell you right now that self-confidence... Self-confidence is something that is good where I work. But it is not a good thing in God's economy. God wants us to be dependent on him. John MacArthur, anybody know John MacArthur? Okay. He writes that Peter's pride was manifested in at least three ways. Peter's pride was manifested in three ways. He, he contradicted God, number one. He exalted himself over others, and he trusted in his own strength. And this maybe would be a good litmus test for us as we, as we monitor our hearts all the time. Are our attitudes and actions contradicting God? Are we exalting ourselves over others? Do, do you sin in some way, but to justify yourself, you think, well, it's not as bad as all these other people that I go to church with, so there's really no need for me to, to be sanctified, to depend on the Lord. Are you trusting in your own strength? When you think about being a godly person, do you think to yourself, I'll figure this out. I'll figure this out. I don't read my Bible in the morning, but somehow I'll still become a godly individual. If so, Christ's betraying pride may be close by. When you sense this, guys, by the power of the Holy Spirit, turn away. Instead of contradicting God, like we just mentioned a second ago, submit to Him. Instead of thinking that you're better than everybody else, serve everybody else. Instead of being self-confident, depend on Jesus. Look at Jesus' response in verse 34 to Peter. He says to Peter, truly I say to you that this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Jesus addresses Peter directly, and what does he tell him? He says, you're going to deny me. You're going to deny me this very night. You're going to deny me three times this very night. You're going to deny me three times this very night before the rooster crows. What do you notice about the way that Jesus tries to redirect Peter here? If we read between the lines, it's as though Jesus is asserting his omniscience, his sovereignty, like we talked about in our theme. He's being so specific about the knowledge that he has about what is in Peter's heart and what is about to happen. This should have caused Peter to be like, my Lord knows everything. I'm going to humble myself before him. But what does Peter do? Look at verse 35. Look at verse 35. Peter said to him, 
Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing too. So how does Peter respond to Jesus? He, he persists in his self-congratulating pride, right? He doesn't humble himself. And as the leader of the disciples, he probably has a part in influencing everyone to say the same thing, to make the same kind of prideful statement. Guys, look up here. We're almost done. It doesn't get much better for the disciples prior to Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. You'll see, I'm sure, this upcoming week and the week after that in a moment they're going to be in the garden and Jesus is going to ask them to pray. And what are they going to do? They're going to fall asleep. And then what's Jesus going to do? He's going to tell them to pray again. And what are they going to do again? They're going to fall asleep again. Whenever folks come and arrest Jesus, one of them even takes out a sword and tries to defend Jesus. What? Defend Jesus? The, the captain of legions and legions of angel armies who doesn't need defending? Perhaps God made it so that it would be clear in our minds that it was not on the basis of their merit or their self-betterment that Jesus went to the cross, but on the basis of his grace and mercy. So look at your outlines one more time with me. Today we've seen, the, we've seen two scenes that demonstrate the sovereignty and the saving work of Jesus Christ. We looked at scene number one. What, what was it called, scene number one? Anybody can yell it out. What is it? Lord's Supper instituted. What were the three sub-points there? The Lord's, the Lord's body, the Lord's, blood. the Lord's, then we saw C number two, the scattered sheep predicted. What are the sub-points there? The, sheep. the, Bob, and the, good job. Guys, as we close, as we close, I want to leave you with a couple points of application. Okay. Point number one, remember the saving work of Christ, his body given his blood poured out, and his coming kingdom. Number two, number two, consider the sovereignty of Christ and trust in the certainty of his words. Take a moment real quick as you look up here to remember the the words of the, the men that we learned about at the beginning, the men that predicted the demise of online shopping, the growing disillusionment with television, and the indestructibility of a ship that as we sit here today is decaying at the bottom of the ocean. Praise the Lord that it is not so with the words of Jesus, right? Just as Jesus predicted, his sheep were eventually scattered. Just as Jesus predicted, Peter denied him. Just as Jesus predicted, he died and was raised three days later. Just as Jesus predicted, he went before his disciples to Galilee. And listen to this, guys. Just as Jesus predicted, we who love him will drink of the fruit of the vine on the day that we enjoy everlasting festive fellowship with our Savior in his Father's kingdom. We serve a good God, a God whose words are certain. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. God, thank you that your word is sure. Thank you that that you have written your word in such a way so that we may believe as we see the things that you say come to pass. Thank you for the grace and mercy of Jesus. Although his disciples would continue to be hard-headed and sinful, he, he proceeded to the cross. Thank you that although we continue to fall short, that Christ died for sinners. Lord, help us to take advantage of your heart-transforming work. God, would we 
be made to look more and more like you as we consider the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. Lord, the next time that we take the Lord's Supper, would we see anew the greatness of your your sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice, his blood, his body, and his coming kingdom. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.